We'll turn today in God's Word, if you happen to have a copy of the Scriptures with you, to the book of Job, chapter 42. Job, chapter 42, of course, this is the last chapter in the book of Job. So that tells you that we're breaking in at the very end of the story. But you really can't understand a story until you get to the end. So sometimes that's what you have to do, is you have to begin at the end in order to get it all together. Let's hear God's word from the book of Job, chapter 42, beginning with verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons for generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of the book of Job. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer as we come to consider his word. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we look to you this evening to speak to us from your word, to open our minds and our hearts so that we would be able to understand we would be able to believe, we would be able to take comfort from the great truths of your word, and we would be able to put into practice, Lord, what we need to in order to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present evil age. Speak to us from your word, O Lord, we pray. Look upon our ignorance, look upon our distress in mercy, and bring to us with power from the Holy Spirit that part of your word that we need to be encouraged for our service to you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've read the last chapter of the book of Job, where everything winds up, where you have the conclusion of the whole thing. 
But of course, in order to think about it, in order to appreciate it, it's helpful to remember what has happened. The story of Job is well known, so I'll just sketch it in very quickly. Job lived during the time of the patriarchs, somewhere in between Abraham and Moses, in all probability. He was not, as far as we know, a descendant of Abraham, but he was nonetheless a worshiper of the Lord. And he was the greatest of all the men of the East. In other words, he was the most wealthy and powerful of the patriarchs, of the householders in his region. Job was also a good and a godly man, one who feared the Lord and turned away from evil. And God had blessed him. God had blessed him with a large family, ten children. God had blessed him with material abundance. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. And everything was going well. And Job was a good leader within his household as his children would gather together to enjoy one another's company, to throw little house parties. Job would offer sacrifices for them in case during their celebration they had sinned. Well, there came a day when the sons of God presented themselves before the Lord. And Satan, the accuser, came among the rest. And God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in all the earth, a perfect and upright man, one who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. And the devil's reply to that is essentially, yeah, but you put Job in such good circumstances, he has no reason to turn his back on you. But make his life tough, and we'll see. So the devil challenges Job's sincerity. He thinks that Job serves God for what he's getting out of it. So God says, okay, take away everything he has, only don't touch him. Leave the integrity of his person okay. So in one day... All of Job's wealth is destroyed in a variety of ways. And Job's children were eating together. And a wind came and smoked the corners of the house. The house collapsed on them and all of his children died. The only people who were left were the messengers who came bringing news of this wave after wave of calamity. And Job's wife who is going to encourage him to curse God and die. So not a lot of help in that particular crisis. How does Job respond to that? Well, Job responds to that by saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the author of the book tells us, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Well, then three of his friends come from far away, and at some point they're joined by a fourth, but we don't know exactly when that fourth one showed up. And they saw how Job was suffering because, I forgot to mention this part, The devil goes back to God a second time, and God points out that Job has not cursed him. God points out that Job has retained his integrity. And the devil says, well, skin for skin, everything a man has, he'll give for his life. Make him sick, and he'll curse you to your face. So God allowed the devil to afflict Job with painful, disgusting, upsetting boils, and basically to ruin his health. So Job took a little fragment of clay pot to scrape himself with, And sat down in the ashes and still didn't sin against God with his lips. Well, then at that point, his friends arrive and they're so shocked by what they see that they sit there for quite a while without saying a word. And after they've been there expressing their sympathy, Job begins to speak. And that opens up the central part of the book from chapter 3 
basically through to chapter 42, verse 7, where there's a bunch of dialogues. Job speaks, and one of his friends answers. And Job speaks again, and another one of his friends answers. And Job speaks again, and another one of his friends answers. And they go around and around like that. And then the fourth friend, Elihu, speaks up. And then God appears on the scene and speaks up. And we heard the tail end of Job's interaction with God at the beginning of chapter 42. And, of course, then we read in chapter 42, the very end of the story, Job is restored. He's restored in the opinion of his friends. He's restored in communion with his family. He's restored in terms of what God gives to him where he gets twice as much as before, where ten more children are born to him. Well, what are we to make of this story? It's clearly interesting. If you identify with Job, it's gets your sympathy going. It, it certainly draws you in in that regard. But what is the meaning of a story where here is a perfect and an upright man? And that's not me. That's God's evaluation of Job. And the devil says, I don't think he's sincere. And so God sends horrible suffering upon him. And when Job retains his integrity, the devil says, well, you haven't made him suffer enough. And God makes him suffer more. And then his friends come. And they say, all of this is happening to you because of your sin. Because that's their basic message to Job, except for Elihu. But the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they all make the same point. Job, you're in this mess because of your sin. And Job says, no, that's not true. Well, Job was right, but what a weird story. What a strange thing to come to grips with. Wouldn't it be easier to live in a world where you could look at somebody and see them suffering and say, you know what? They must have offended God. And you could look at somebody and everything's going well for them. And you could say, God is pleased with them. Wouldn't that be an easy world to live in? But that is not the reality. That's nowhere near the reality. We ought to be grateful for the book of Job because it shows us that life is not that simple. We can also have the temptation of Job's friends to look at somebody whose suffering is extreme and to think they must have done something wrong. I remember hearing of a family in the church of a friend of mine. They were at church and a little girl came up behind her dad and he started to turn. He tripped over her. He fell on her. He injured her. She died. A few months later, they had another little boy. He was crawling up the outside of his crib. He fell off. He banged his head. He died. What horrible suffering to come upon a family. And how easy it would be for people to think, why why is that family careless with their kids? It would be easy to say, let's blame them for this horrible suffering. And that would make sense. At least if it's their fault, you know why it happened. But if it's not their fault, that leaves you with an enormous question. That leaves you with the problem of evil. Well, Job leaves us with that problem. By the end of the book, there are still some unanswered questions. But there's also something that is very compelling here. And this is the part I really want to focus on. God's anger was kindled, not against Job, but against Job's three friends. And God says to Eliphaz, and is including Bildad and Zophar in this, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So that gives us two things 
that we need to consider. First is Job's friends spoke wrongly of God. Now, let me give you some samples of things that they said. Let me give you a sample from each of them. Eliphaz chapter 4 said this. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now, doesn't that sound like Paul in the book of Galatians? Don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that also he will reap. How is Eliphaz speaking wrongly about God when he says that? Well, keep the question in mind. Here's Bildad, chapter 8, verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Doesn't that sound like the prophet Habakkuk? God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. Or what about Paul again in the New Testament? What fellowship, what communion does Christ have with Belial? How is that speaking wrongly of God? Again, keep the question in mind. Here's Zophar, chapter 11. Know then that God exacts of you, of Job, less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Doesn't Zophar sound orthodox? God is unsearchable. God is incomprehensible. We can't measure his ways. Well, Paul said it. How unsearchable are his judgments, his ways past finding out. And is it not true that whatever amount of suffering we go through, it's less than we deserve? So how is it that these three friends are speaking of God what is not right? This is Job's evaluation of their speech to him. Chapter 13, he says, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? What is Job saying? He's saying, look, you're standing up to speak for God. You're standing up to defend God, but you're doing so in an unrighteous way. You're saying, because God is righteous and I'm suffering, I must deserve this suffering. I must have done something to offend God so that he came against me in this judgment. Well, Job is aware of his own conscience. Job is aware of how he has lived. Job knows that that's not the case. Job understands. Job does acknowledge sin. Job acknowledged sin in chapter 42. But Job has not done anything to call down upon himself these particular sufferings he's going through. Here's Elihu's reaction to the speeches of Job's three friends. Chapter 32, it says, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. You see, that was their starting point. We see the suffering. We know Job must be wrong. Now let's wildly make false accusations until we figure out what it was. They accused Job of committing adultery. They accused Job of oppressing the poor. They accused Job of all kinds of things, none of which were true. Why did they do that? They did that because they wanted to defend God. They heard in Job's speeches that God was being accused, and you'll see why in just a moment if you're not already familiar with it. But they rose to defend God, and Job didn't appreciate it. Elihu didn't appreciate it. God himself did not appreciate it. We already read that, chapter 42, verse 7. God explicitly told Eliphaz, I am mad at you. My anger burns against you 
because you have not spoken properly about me. There's a warning there, isn't there? We can speak for God. We can speak on God's behalf in a way that God does not appreciate. We should be careful not to do that. They did this through a glib, through a superficial approach to suffering. You're suffering, Job, you must deserve it. We don't know exactly what the sin is, so we're just going to go through the list until we catch you in something. What a mean-spirited way to defend God. What a way to reduce God's sovereignty as though suffering were always, only a response to you did something wrong. How would they have been able to apply that in the case of the Lord Jesus? He did no sin. There was no guile found in his mouth. And yet, was there ever a grief like his? Who suffered as much as the Lord Jesus? It is much too simplistic to say, you're suffering? Oh, well, you deserve it. It's not compassionate, but it's also wrong. It misrepresents God. And so God told Eliphaz and his friends off. Now, God explicitly says here, that his servant Job has spoken of him what is right. Let me give you a few samples of what Job said, just two samples, one from chapter 16 and one from chapter 24. In chapter 16, we've got a little bit of an extended passage. Job is talking about God, and he says, He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. Or again, more briefly from chapter 24. From out of the city, the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. Did you catch what Job said? With reference to himself, he said that God has attacked him and been savage to him without a good reason. Now, that might seem very shocking, but if you read the first chapter of Job, if you read the first two chapters of Job, you will find that God says to the devil, you moved me against Job without a cause. There was no reason in Job for him to suffer this way. And then, speaking with reference to others, Job says that it falls into the general pattern of God's dealings, that the dying groan, the wounded cry for help, and yet God does not bring vengeance on those who brought them into that situation. I'm deliberately making this a little bit difficult. There is an answer. I don't want you to think there isn't. But Job had to go through this. And his experiences are written down for our benefit, for our profit. It's helpful for us to think about this. In the case of Job, God says there was not a cause for Job to suffer this way. Job recognizes that. Job sees that. Job complains that God does not uphold justice. Obviously, the meaning is not that God will never uphold justice, but here and now, do people get away with murder? 
You know the answer to that. Here and now, are there things that happen that are terribly wrong, and yet there does not seem to be any vengeance? We look around for it, we hope for it, we pray for it. In fact, even the saints who are in heaven, if you think about Revelation chapter 6, the souls who are under the altar, they're crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge? They've been martyred for Christ, and they're still wondering, how long is it going to take before judgment comes? The worldview of the Bible is not simplistic. The Bible acknowledges the difficulties that we experience, that good people We understand the qualifications around that. But people who are serving the Lord, people who are doing the right thing, people who in general are on the right track, they experience horrible suffering. Whereas the wicked, they seem to get away with it. They seem to be flourishing it. This isn't unique to Job. You can find it in the Psalms. You can find it in Psalm 73, for instance. And this is a problem. This is something that does weigh down on the hearts of believers. So you think about the way Job spoke, where he attacked God almost. He criticized God's dealings. And God says, Job spoke of me what was right. The friends were speaking on God's behalf. They were showing that God was in the clear, that God had done nothing wrong. And God said, they didn't speak of me what was right. That's a little mind-blowing when you start to get into it. That's When you let that sink in, it's astonishing. But in a good way, it ought to expand our view of God. God is perfectly well aware of the fact that in this world, there are injustices that go unanswered. God is perfectly well aware that for us, evil and suffering remain a difficult and a painful mystery. God gives us some answers. The ultimate answer is that God gives us himself. God gives us himself, as you can see in the book of Job. Who came and talked to Job at the end? Well, it was God. And after that experience, after that interaction with God, Job quieted down. He had learned before he'd heard about God, but now he'd seen him. He was content. And of course, God gives us himself in the person of Christ. Can we explain, can we lay out in very clear language so that everybody can understand The problem of evil and the answer to it, probably not. But what we can do is we can point people to Christ. We can point out that God did create a world where evil was allowed and where evil has flourished in many ways. But God entered into this world in the person of his son. God paid the price for his decisions because God the son died on the cross. And God gives us himself. That's the answer. It's not an intellectual answer, maybe, but it's an answer that is satisfying to the human heart. It's not an explanation, but it is more than an explanation. It is a relationship with God. Now, Job had had a relationship with God throughout. God appreciated, if I can use that language, that Job spoke up, that Job came to him with his complaint. Job didn't turn his back on God. Job had a problem with God. Well, he told God about it. He went to God with it. And you can see that pattern in the Psalms. You can see that pattern in the book of Jeremiah. To some degree, you can see that pattern in our Lord Jesus as well. What do you do 
when injustice has got you down? What do you do when you're suffering and you feel like you don't deserve it? What do you do when you have a complaint about the government of the world, of the universe? Well, I hope you take it to the governor. I hope you take it to God himself. God appreciated that Job did that. Because God sided with Job. Here, at the end of the book, after Job has been through wave after wave of his friends' accusations against him, against them saying, you deserve to have your kids die. You deserve to lose all your wealth. You deserve to be suffering and disgusting with these horrible boils. After they said all those things to him, who did not say that? Who vindicated Job? Who honored Job? It was God himself. God sided with Job. How can we understand that? Well, I think there's several things that we can say about that. One is, God does not need superficial defenders. You don't need to let God off the hook. When unbelievers or people from another religious background or whatever it may be come to you and they say, well, if God is good, how come babies die of cancer? You don't need to get God off the hook for that. God doesn't get himself off the hook. God takes responsibility for that. Now, of course, we understand that sin entered into the world, death through sin, we're all living under the curse, and the curse is our fault, and that's a perfectly legitimate thing to say to people. But we don't need to say it from a posture of defense. We don't need to be embarrassed for God. God is not embarrassed for himself, and whenever we're engaging in apologetics, whenever we're defending God, so to speak, we need to be careful not to apologize or not to make excuses for God. Just set out the truth. Share what the Bible says. And if that's not good enough for people, okay, that's their problem. It was good enough for God because God wrote the Bible. We should also notice God does correct Job's speech. Job did go above and beyond. He said some things he shouldn't have said. And so God asks him the question, who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. God challenges Job. God corrects him, but God also honors him. And we read that in chapter 42. God honored Job in a variety of ways. He honored Job by making him the mediator for his friends. You notice what he says to Eliphaz, take seven bulls and seven rams, go to my servant Job, offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job shall pray for you. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. You need Job to intercede with you Or you're going to be dealt with. Well, that humbles the friends and that honors Job. God is telling them, I will listen to Job's prayers on your behalf. But you definitely need somebody to intercede for you after the way you behaved. Well, here were people who had falsely accused Job of all kinds of scandalous sins. God says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to forgive you unless he prays for you. How could Job be more highly honored than that? Again, God praised Job. At the beginning of the book, he said, who's like my servant Job, a perfect and an upright man? Well, here he says, Job has spoken of me what is right. All the suffering that Job went through did not change God's opinion of him. God continued to honor his servant. And then, of course, God honored him by restoring his fortune, by restoring his position. In fact, by more than restoring, by going above and beyond, by giving him double what he had before. But what are we going to take away 
from this curious book, this curious passage in the book. Well, one thing that I think is very comforting is that God defends his people from false accusations. The world will say all kinds of mean things about Christians. That's okay. God defends us. We don't have to clear our own name. We don't have to get all up in arms. We don't have to worry about it. We're not our own defenders. The Lord is our defender. God will speak up for us. Now, he'll do that in his own time, not necessarily when we would like him to. But God defends us from false accusations. Do you feel like you've been misunderstood? Do you feel like you've been misrepresented? Do you feel like people make you out to be worse than you are? Well, don't worry about it. God defends his people. Job didn't have to vindicate himself. God did it for him. And of course, Job's attempts to defend himself only stirred his friends up more. But when God spoke up to defend him, they were quiet. They had nothing more to add at that point. Here's another lesson. The way that Job turned to God with all his bruised and disappointed feelings was more acceptable to God than the simplistic justifications that Job's friends offered for God's behavior. You know, if you're in a season of life where people say, well, everything happens for a reason, and that feels like a platitude that makes you want to punch them, you can go to God with that feeling. God can handle those feelings. You don't, I mean, you can be gracious to the people who say those things. Most of the time they mean well. But God understands those bruised, those battered feelings. God gets how hard that is. And what God wants you to do with that is not pretend, is not make out that everything is okay when it isn't. God invites us through Job as well as through many other parts of Scripture to come to him and tell him about that. Let me exhort you to turn your pain into prayer, not by pretending the pain isn't there, but just by telling God, this is how I feel. This is what's going on in my head. If I need to be corrected, correct me, but this is what's going on. God can handle that. God is not going to be upset by that. God valued that from Job more than the platitudes from Job's friends. We can also learn this, that God is gracious about our hasty speech and thoughts in hard times. Job himself raised the question in chapter 6, do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? When we're in the middle of intense suffering, it's hard to choose our words well. It's hard to balance all the considerations and say things that are exactly accurate. You know what? God understands that too. God understands that the language we use when we're in deep distress and despair is maybe not the best. Did he give Job a hard time about that? No. He recognized, he valued the truth in what God said, even though the way, or or the truth in what Job said, excuse me, even though the way that Job said some of what he had to say was a little over the top. That's okay. God is gracious. God is merciful to us in our suffering and in the sometimes exaggerated responses that we have. To our suffering. But there's also this, which may be a comfort to some of us as well, that God is merciful to the superficial and self righteous. 
Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they saw Job suffering. They said, well, he must have done something horrible. And of course, they're not suffering in the same way. So what's the unstated conclusion they're drawing? We're better than Job. We haven't done what he's done. What a relief. We're still in God's good book. But God told them otherwise, didn't he? My anger is burning against you and your two friends, he says to Eliphaz. But what does God do with that anger? Does he immediately flame out in judgment? Does he render them worse than Job? He does not. He appoints for them an intercessor. He provides a mediator and a sacrifice for them. Well, isn't that a moving image of the gospel? Perhaps we have grown up in the church. Perhaps we have always had a decent, upright behavior. Perhaps in looking at us from the outside, people who can't see our hearts think, well, that's a really good person. We also need sacrifice. We also need a mediator. We also stand in need of God's grace. Isn't it wonderful that the gospel is for those who have gone egregiously astray, but it's also for those whose outward life is respectable. They need it as much as anyone else. But it's for them too. God has appointed a mediator. Job, at the end of the book, he becomes a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ through the body of the book because he's an innocent sufferer. Not absolutely innocent and not absolutely blameless in his suffering. But like Jesus, Job suffers without having deserved it. At the end of the book, Job becomes a type of Christ because he intercedes for his superficial, self-righteous friends and he secures God's forgiveness for them. Well, doesn't that point us to the Lord Jesus Christ who ever lives to make intercession for us, who brings us before God's throne and secures God's forgiving mercy to be poured out upon us. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Job. We pray that you would help us, Lord, as we read it, as we return to it over the years, to enter into its depths, to see its fundamental lessons ever more clearly. And Lord, we pray that today you would comfort those who are suffering. May they know that however deep, however intense their sufferings, you have not shut them out. From speaking to you, you welcome their prayers, even their angry, even their despairing prayers. Lord, help them to know that the end of all of these things will be good. That the reason behind the suffering is so that you can give them yourself in a fuller, in a deeper, in a richer way. Lord, for those of us who have been guilty of judging others because of their suffering, for those of us who have lapsed into the theology of Job's friends that surely nobody would be in such a bad situation unless they had displeased you. We pray that you would forgive us for our superficiality, for our lack of compassion, and that you would teach us to look on your people with your eyes. Lord, we do lift up our voices, our hearts to you. We do cry out, how long, O Lord? We do look forward to the day when injustice will be sorted out, when vengeance will come, when you will rise to defend your people and to clear their name. Lord, we ask that you would give us patience to trustingly, peacefully wait for your timing for that great deliverance. 
bless us now as we go to prayer, Lord. We ask that this message would have been encouraging, would prepare us to bring our petitions and supplications before you. In Jesus' name we pray these things.